0: Good afternoon, friends. My name is Graham, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. And it's my great pleasure to be chairperson of the second part of the afternoon meeting. And I'm going to make a chairman's prerogative, and I'm going to, rather than open our meeting with the traditional uh, steps and how it works, I'm going to take it that Lynn did that for us at 1.30. I'm going to ask you to join me in this serenity prayer, and then we'll get on with the meeting. So, to allow us to center and allow me to to call in the value of Serenity Prayer, would you please join me in the prayer? God, grant me.
1: The things
2: I cannot change. to change the things I can. And there no other
0: Thank you. Um, this has been, so far for me, a really very healing experience. I, as When Linda and I arrived last night, as we often do, when we as we always do, actually, when we go to IDAA or we go to conventions, we can feel the love, we can feel the caring, we can feel the sharing. And I think as, as somebody said this morning, I think it might have been Mike, um, at the, the first call-up meeting at 7 a.m. this morning, this is so different from our traditional medical meetings that we're all so familiar with. We look each other in the eye, we laugh, we're honest, and we're open, and we have nothing to hide. I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and I also, by the way, happen to be a physician. Fred H., one of the co-chairpersons, has asked if I would share with you briefly, which I'm going to do, and then we'll have our speakers at much greater length. Um, I enjoyed Ian's talk this morning. I could relate to it. I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father, who was a physician, was alcoholic. As far as I knew until recently, and this is a little part of my story, he died of the disease of alcoholism. He lost everything including his license to practice medicine, ended up in Skid Row in the city of Glasgow where I come from and I thought had died in Skid Row. I knew he had died but wasn't sure of the circumstances because we had lost touch. I was extremely angry at that man's disease only to develop that disease myself and then discover that when the time came for me to do what I was told in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I had great difficulty even knowing how to make an amend to this man whom I really wanted to forgive and whom I wanted so much to have forgiveness from as well. My first drink of alcohol was at age 16. It was scotch that I stole at a girlfriend's house, and I got drunk. My last drink was age 41, and it was wine, and I got drunk. And between 16 and 41, each time I took alcohol, I usually got intoxicated. Alcohol, you know, worked for me for a while. It fulfilled that missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle that Ian alluded to this morning in his talk. And when that stopped working, I went to pills. And in the, in the, uh, the days I went to prescription drugs to the time I graduated, it was the days when in Ontario, they used to send our drug samples to us in the mail. And I was one of those doctors who would eat his mail. And, and then when the prescription drugs, the pills weren't working, I went to the champagne of narcotics that some of us are familiar with, and that's Demerol. And so my experience, like so many of us in this room, was always looking for a chemical solution to life's problems because what I would do was compare my insides to your outsides. And I knew what a mess my insides were, and yet your outsides look so put together. And when I put a chemical into my body that changed the way I felt, I suddenly felt inside the way I thought I was supposed to feel. And the sneaky and baffling thing about that was it always seemed to work for a while. But because of the disease that's progressive, I, dis- I developed more and more problems, as so many of us did. My first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was in 1975 my effective dry date is the 8th of january 1986 and i had a lot of a pro- lot of problems and a lot of difficulties in that 11 years that i'm not going to go into i want to share with you three things that tell me alcoholics anonymous works for me and for all of us who choose this way of life you know when when the chiefs of staff and the wives and the lawyers and the judges and the friends and the children and my mother said to me, I wish you would stop drinking. I was as physically sober as I am today. You see, what they all failed to understand was that alcohol was not the problem. Damn it, couldn't they see that it was the solution? And it wasn't until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and a very wise man said, you have to pray, and I got down on my knees on the 8th of January 1986 and prayed that I began to recover. I was given the solution to sobriety, which was the problem all along. And I've struggled with sobriety, as we all have, and I've had wonderful moments in sobriety, as, I've all have, and as we all have, and I've looked at people and thought, God, if I were in their shoes, could I stay sober? And there's the few things I want to share with you. My home group is the acceptance group in Guelph, Ontario. I still go to a lot of Main Street AA. My first two and a half years of recovery, I had eight to ten hours of AA per day. My sponsor was a fellow known as Third Step Jack, and you can imagine why he's called that. Jack had a grade 6 education, has a grade 6 education. Jack's about 270 pounds, and his approach with me is a subtle one. He would put a headlock on me, and he'd say to me, what have you done to stay sober today? And that worked for me, and that's what I needed. And Jack took me to lots and lots and lots of meetings, and I gradually learned a way of life, and I began to realize that people had many, many more problems than me. And in my home group some six months ago, One of the fellows came in, he's a man in his mid-twenties, and he came in and he seemed down and a bit blue and a bit sad, and he began to share with us, and that day his daughter had fallen into a swimming pool. She was five years old, and she was pulled out by the babysitter, was unconscious, was rushed to hospital, and that night was in life support systems. And the AA community in our little town of 85,000 just came in round that man and his wife, who was an Al-Anon. Unfortunately, the daughter did not survive and five days later, that child was dead and the AA community came round that man and his wife who's in Alanon. And we went to the funeral home and we went to the funeral and we went to his house and the AA community came round that man and his wife who's in Alanon and that man continues to be sober today. I don't know if I could have done that, but I've learned a tremendous amount from watching that man stay sober and watching the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous keep him sober. About a week and a half later, a lady that I had worked with in program, a nurse who had really struggled through extended program, had been in our service about three and a half months, had managed to stay sober, get into a meaningful recovery, and go back to her own community and was sober about six months, phoned me up and said, can I talk to you? And we got together and we talked. And the night before she talked to me, her son, who was a final year PhD student in a university in London, had been shot in the back of his head by his stepmother, and he died. And the AA community surrounded that woman and supported her. And she continues to be sober today. And there are two tremendous lessons for this recovering alcoholic physician. I don't know if I could stay sober with that pain, because I haven't had to face that yet. But I do know that the community of Alcoholics Anonymous surrounded these people, and with love, and caring, and sharing, propped them up at the moments, as my sponsor says to me, at the times when he says, Graham, don't lean on me today. I'm having trouble standing up myself. And that's what AA did for these two people. And the third thing about Alcoholics Anonymous I wish to share with you is about my dad. The exposition, the Skid Row alcoholic, who died in Scotland sometime in the mid-70s. I was back visiting my mother, and I was redoing my steps. And I was back at step nine. I had made amends to my first physician partner in Canada, the man who had brought me to this country, who sued me three years later, who reported me to the licensing body in in Ontario at that time, and I had made my amends to him, but I had not made my amends to my dad, and I didn't quite know how to do it. And my mother and I were sitting talking about this in her house in Glasgow when I was back on a visit, and that night I decided to go to an A. E. meeting. I got in my mum's car, and I drove to the, the place, the hall where the meeting was being held, and I went in, and I'm shy, and I'm not sure in the right meeting, And I've got some years of sobriety, and I might not have to go anyway, but I had a feeling I wanted to go to the meeting. And I went to the hall, and it was all ladies. And I discovered I was in a Weight Watchers meeting. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but Weight Watchers isn't going to keep me sober. But it would have been awful easy to get back in the car and just go back to my mother's house and say I couldn't find the meeting. But I persevered. I went round the building again and found another door and saw a little Glasgow fellow walking in bandy legs and a cloth cap. And I said, is there an AE meeting here? And he said, yes, down this. And it was kind of an awkward place to get to, but we got there. And the speaker was talking his story, and his story included being in the equivalent of a state mental hospital near the city of, in the city of Glasgow. And I knew that after my father had left home, the house and the family, and had lost his license to practice medicine, I knew that he'd been in this state mental hospital as equivalent because I had visited with him, and we had talked a little bit, and I'd, to the psychiatrist, I'd spoken to the psychiatrist who was looking after him. So I thought afterwards I'd go up to this speaker, and I went up to him, and I said, when you were in this state mental hospital, did you happen to know a Dr. Jimmy C? And the man said, I took him to his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's an amend for me. I don't have to worry about that man forgiving me, and I don't have to worry about forgiving that man because I have the same disease as him. Through no fault of my own. But I know that with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the changes that occur in those of us who lift up and work this program, he's forgiven me and I can forgive him. And that's a wonderful experience. One final thing I want to share with you before the main speakers get up is a a poem that I heard a lady give at an open meeting I was at two weeks ago in my home group. And she gave me permission to use this. And it's a little prayer that she, I don't know if she wrote it, but I find it very meaningful. So bear with me as I share it with you. Her name is Rean, and, and as I say, she gave me permission to use it. Thank you, dear God, for another day, the chance to live in a decent way, to feel again the joy of living and happiness that comes from giving. Thank you for friends who can understand and the peace that flows from your loving hand. Help me to wake to the morning sun with the prayer, Today thy will be done. For with your help, I will find a way. Thank you again, dear God, for AA. And thank you for those experiences in the last three months in my recovery that allowed me to grow. And thank you for letting me share with you. So far today, from the the spiritual call-up meeting at 7 a.m. to to this panel, we have heard tremendous stories. I know we're going to hear three more, and I'd like you to, first of all, um, help me welcome John L. from New York.
3: Hi, family. I'm John, and I'm an addict, and one of my drugs was alcohol. When they asked me to speak a year ago, it was okay. Now... Uh, a little bit nervous. Um, I knew I was messed up when I was five, and if I could have shot cocaine when I was five, I would have done it. But I didn't get to my first drink or drug in my last year in medical school when I was 22. And I smoked a joint. And within six months, I was skin popping Ritalin then you could get without a prescription. So I would uh, borrow the Ritalin and skin pop it through my pants. And uh, even though it wasn't clean, I didn't care because it worked. And I felt wonderful. All of the problems went away, and it was definitely the solution. I mean, I didn't care about anything. I didn't study the last two years of medical school. I don't know how I got through. Maybe osmosis, you know. (laughs) Maybe some of those brain cells that didn't get damaged got activated. But I I managed to get through. And um, I continued to drink and drug. Uh, my problem started when I, I did my internship at Bellevue, and they thought I had a problem. Now, I didn't, but, you know, that's how we are. Um, I had first been introduced to the needle when I was two when I became diabetic. Um, they locked the ice box. And then, you know, in 1944, they did all that kinds of stuff, which was a good reason for hating my mother until I understood that she's an alcoholic and drinks uh two glasses of wine like this every night. And uh, she has a disease, but I didn't know it when I was two and three. So I got, I got introduced to the needle when I was two, uh and unfortunately still have one that so I have to take five times a day. Anyway, so uh at Bellevue I started to have my first problems, and I knew then that something was a little bit wrong, but the drugs and acid then, this was the 60s, and everybody did acid, you know, and um, I was a bit in, a bit in trouble when uh, they told me, listen, you're not going to get your residency if you're not up to shape. We don't know what's wrong, but something ain't right. And 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 they asked me what the head circumference was of one of the preemies, and I told them something at twice the size that couldn't be. So that was my residency, gone. Uh, and I still didn't care. I still kept on drinking and drugging because I needed it. I mean, it was really the answer. I never had to look at anything, you know. And uh I was starting to shoot some LSD at that point, and I loved acid. I mean, it was wonderful. All the drugs were great, and tequila, of course, which was the only drug to come off of everything on. Um, and so, I managed to 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 get an adolescent medicine fellowship. Now, I was about three years old mentally, and I got an adolescent medicine fellowship somewhere in the West Coast. Um, and that screwed up one day when I wound up in a hospital ward from overdoing PCP, and they called my father. And my father managed, I think, to this day. Uh, he called uh, Krugman, and I had a big talk with Krugman, and I lost that, and I went to a place called Lincoln Hospital where we had the Lincoln Hospital Collective. Now, Lincoln Hospital Collective, I don't know about, I can't talk for the other people, but I knew I did a lot of drugs there. And um, there was a detox there that used acupuncture, which is where I started to use acupuncture, and we at that time did not consider cocaine so addicting. So, you know, all the time I was working, I was snorting. I hadn't started exactly shooting it yet, but I was snorting and drinking a lot and loving it every single minute of it. Uh, again, because I felt real. Uh, and it stopped me from feeling empty. Uh, you know, I, I remember someone saying to me, boy, your emotions and your intellect change about every 10 minutes. Uh, again, a little clue that something was wrong. I had another clue that something was wrong when, during one of my cocaine binges. Uh, and we actually, had, the year before I came, they had taken the head of OB, who, a woman had died from a shot of epinephrine that she wasn't supposed to get. She was pregnant. And they threw the director out on his, on his rear end bodily. Um, so during one of my binges, uh, I had suggested that everybody evaluate, the, the cleaning people, the working people, evaluate the staff. And I was the only one asked to repeat the year. Which, which I did. And I, I, still didn't think something was wrong. But I guess that was the first act of any kind of humility I had. And I repeated the year. And um, then I, then I started working full time in the detox and using acupuncture. And got a license or, or certified by New York to do it, even though I was pretty certifiable at the time. And my drug use got heavier. Well, I don't know how it happened, but I didn't reach my bottom for 16 years later when I was 38. Uh, you know, if there was free base around, I probably would have be, reached it quicker. But I started to reach, reach a bottom when I was um, working in an emergency room, and they had a cabinet with cocaine in it, which managed to disappear quite frequently. And, <laughs> you know, um, and, of course, I thought I was, I was God's gift to the emergency room. Uh, I was coming in with abscesses in my hands and uh, very erratic behavior, and I can remember that the uh, uh, the nurses said, "Let me see your arms." Well, they never asked to see my legs, so I was okay. Um, I I had met a woman, and she asked me out, and she moved in and got pregnant eight days later uh, and she fell in love with my best friend, and this was going on at the same time, which is not a happy situation. Well, what works for for unhappy situations? I mean, cocaine and alcohol, and tequila, of course, because I like the worm, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I I was, I was really a worm, but, uh, anyway, the stuff worked, and I didn't care. I really didn't care. Um, well, one day, um, I managed to uh, borrow a bunch of cocaine I I took such risks the narcotics cabinet was open and all of a sudden the cocaine was missing from it and since we're on tape I won't say what happened to it even though the statute of limitations is over and then the the coke was back in the the cabinet and uh, I went upstairs and I came back rather stoned Um, and The nurses said, they couldn't even confront me. They said, we know what your problem is, now get the hell out of here. And I went to my first nut house. And in my first nut house, uh, Payne Whitney, they said, long-term treatment. And I said, up yours. And they prescribed lithium. So what I did is I went out in the past and I wrote myself a prescription for lithium and I went and shot it. And it didn't work. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I said, you know, enough of that crap. <laughs> I tried to listen, you know, and and they let me out. I think because I tried to take over the ward, and they they couldn't deal with me. And so then what happened was I have another uh, another disease, compulsive gambling, and I unfortunately won nineteen thousand dollars in Atlantic City, and I took a geographic to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> now. <laughs> a Jew in Saudi Arabia is a whole other story. And there I was in the middle of Saudi Arabia helping, um, working in a pediatric ward. And they loved me there. Mainly because I was, a, I was you know, the same person I was, but I, I didn't have no dope. And I dried out a bit. Well, you know, something went wrong. Because even though I managed to get a little bit of alcohol there because I have it for the IPPB machines. um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't get no coke and I was fired and I was given a first-class ticket back home. And I picked up my kids from the ex-wife, uh, she was now in love with my best friend and I was so busy worrying whether they were married, We were I mean my ex, ex-woman, we were never married. Um, I took the kids to Hawaii and I shot up at a party with my kids and for three seconds I felt wonderful and the coke wasn't working. And when the, you know, that horrible rap I had for three seconds, oh, the world is wonderful. And then I came down. I said, oh, my God, I'm shooting up in front of my kids. My denial was so bad, it didn't matter. Uh, I sort of fixed it with Miriam in that I didn't bring the kids back in time and I just didn't call her. And uh, she wasn't too happy about that, especially since I had picked them up and taken them to the Grand Canyon without calling them a little earlier. And that was my last chance, you know. I haven't seen my daughter for quite a while. Uh, she was brainwashed. A lot of stuff she said, she was told, really happened. Except, you know, people just don't understand that we have a disease. I understand that I had a brain problem and that the, the drugs worked until they stopped working. So, get back from Hawaii and I get another job and another emergency room by BSing and not telling them that I had just been canned from the, from the first one and uh, what I would do there was I would take blood from patients, uh, who had high blood pressure. When the nurses weren't looking, I would squirt it in their nose and then call for the cocaine for the nosebleeds, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I got a lot of cocaine that way, you know? I remember, uh, I'm trying to tell how it was and what happened and that's the way it was, <laughs> you know? And, uh, <laughs> So I, I remember when I was there, there was this uh, uh, young physician who kept on saying to me, I think you're addicted to cocaine, and I thought she was lying. And I would come in with abscesses on my hands, and I would tell everybody the cat scratched me, and I was the only one who believed it. Uh, well, one day when I squirted the blood in my patient's nose, the nurse saw it, and I got suspended. And i they didn't even confront me about the drugs suspended for, you know, being late for personal problems, you know. I made up all these problems I had with Marion, which I really was having, but they, wasn't, they weren't bothering me at work. They were just a good reason to use dope uh, and alcohol, of course. Now, the good thing about Coke is that they don't smell on you, you know. So I, I would never drink and work, but stoned, ooh, you know. And I really thought, that's how so bad my denial was, that I thought that, that nobody knew. Um, I lived with friends, and I taught a group of midwives to deliver babies at home, and they delivered their baby, and the friends took care of me, and they kicked me out. And things were getting real bad. My bottom started getting a little bad-er uh, when I was uh in my apartment, and I couldn't live high, and I couldn't live straight. I don't like the word straight. I hate that word straight. I couldn't live high, and I couldn't live without using drugs. And so I was going to stab myself in the heart with a knife. And I remember the first positive thing I I I, I ever thought almost was, I don't want to die in pain. So I had, <laughs> that was positive. I I had done stuff earlier, like to try and stop using Coke. Um I would take, um, I'm blood type A, and I would take Coke and mix it with anti-A serum, and that's oh, I'll never do the coke. Well, I would shoot the anti-A serum mixed with the coke, and here I am, you know. So I don't know what it proves, <laughs> but uh, I knew that I had a problem when I when actually I would put I would put cocaine in anti-A blood serum and inject it and say that I'll, that that'll make me never do it. I didn't see that how addicted I was. I didn't even see how lucky I was that I didn't die. So I didn't stab myself in the heart with a knife, and I took five hundred units of regular of insulin. I don't know whether it was regular NPH. And I mixed it with some coke and I shot it. It didn't work or something didn't work and I wound up in Bellevue's Nuthouse where I did my internship and that's real embarrassing you know so there I am in Bellevue's Nuthouse my second Nuthouse and everybody in the Nuthouse I was in the good part of the Nuthouse luckily you know and because I was in the bad part of the Nuthouse I don't know whether I would have ever gotten out. And everybody was like recovering, and it was my I spent my thirty eighth or thirty seventh birthday in there and i I think I still have the birthday card and those people were early recovering people, and it was my first hint that there was anything besides dope, you know, and that I wasn't a dope but uh, but I also remember. This really wonderful black gentleman in there one of the aides says "I'm an alcoholic, and I thought, "Oh Christ, alcoholic, I just did Coke, you know he's an alcoholic, leave me alone you know and he tried he tried to twelve step me and i I learned something from him because I never ever ever keep my anonymity with any of my patients if I can help it, you know except some in some rare rare occasions when it may be dangerous um and he tried to he tried to help, and it didn't do no good. Well, I got out of the mental hospital because one of the psychiatrists who I made love with when I made an office visit released me in his recognition and I got out of the nut house because of that when I go home and I'm home and I'm cured. I guess everybody can relate to that. ooh, it's fine now I had had no job I had had nothing okay now right then was when everything started to happen, but there's one thing that happened I left out. Um, about a year before I started to reach what I thought was my bottom, uh, I was in bed shooting up in my loft bed, and I raised this kid for a short time. I took him to Hawaii so that I could get clean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> his 18-year-old Puerto Rican kid, <laughs> and, and he was wonderful. He walks in with his parents. And I'm in my loft bed shooting up, and what does any good junkie do? Now, this is to show you how bad my denial was. I knew I couldn't be shooting up while his parents were there. I mean, they were the ones who kicked him out, and I squirted the coke into the blanket. And when his parents left, what I did was I took the coke, and I skin-popped it, and this is what happened. That's 18 operations and a myositis later, and I didn't know I had a problem. I was shooting up after I had my 18 or 13 operations in the same arm where I had my myositis, and I was a physician. I hadn't lost my license, and uh, I was in the hospital, and they said you're an addict, and I said I am not, and I called a psychiatrist, and then they once they saw that I had no withdrawal from Demerol, they put me back on the Demerol again. So I, I was getting to a pretty bad bottom, you know. Um, so I get out of the nut house, and because I said I got released in the shrink's recognition and you know. I'm really grateful as to what happened. I, uh, I now I would report any shrink who made love with his patients, if you could call it that. But it, at least I got, re- I got released to go home, and I think that was the start of I had to rely on anyone but myself. And I also couldn't ask people to fix it for me. I would call uh, uh, Doyle over in um, Mississippi. Every time I got high, I would shoot up, and I'd call and say, please help me. And then I'd never call back. You know? And I once called the San Francisco Cocaine Anonymous Hotline, hi, and I gave them my real name and number. And they didn't do anything except they changed the phone number. I was calling from New York. <laughs> and, and now I think of it, why, sh- why should they? How did I know that that was the real John L., right? Or anything like that. Anyway, so, I come out of the Nut House, and I'm home. And I think I'm cured. And I start to walk across the street to my dealer. And I knew I was going to die. And my legs wouldn't stop. And I'm walking across the street. And my legs wouldn't stop. And I knew I was going to die. And I didn't want to die. And I didn't want to have no more pain. And I'll never forget. I, I walk across the street. And I said, God, if you're up there, either kill me, make me nuts permanently, or stop this. And he, and he did. That was eight years ago. And I've been clean and, and sober ever since. And... Now I'm getting happy with AA and NA. And, you know, it's the 12 steps that let me get happy. Because I was a miserable son of a gun. Try not to say bitch, but you know. I was a miserable sucker until I did dope. And then I was happy for 12 seconds. And it's the, you know, it's the 12 steps that let me learn how to love and live again. Uh, I think the first and second I got walking across the street. Uh The, th- the third, um, I had to turn everything over because I, th- I had nothing. I mean, I thought I was, uh, I, I felt like I was a, a schizophrenic mess that was waiting to do something. Um, it wasn't that at all. I was just an adult child of an alcoholic, which is a disease, with the disease of, of compulsive, you know, everything in the world <laughs> on top of it, that was temporarily uh taken care of by the alcohol and the dope um four and five helped a lot i did stuff that, uh, that i would tell my friends like max and other people but i did stuff that i couldn't stay here uh that i should feel guilty for four and five got rid of a lot of the guilt um six and seven let 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 me see which of my ways of thinking um were dangerous and just recently uh i've been doing my like, praying doing a six and seven for almost a year and i i realized that you know uh, one of the character defects is like masochism. It's masochistic to not see the beauty in our own recovery. And it's masochistic, uh, and dangerous to not see the beauty in other people, even though they may have negative things about them. And, uh, I was, oh, for almost a year recently, I was doing a sixth and seventh, and I just realized, you know, hey, sucker, just look at the beautiful parts of people and pray for that part, and their negative parts will be taken care of by the higher power, just like yours were uh so you know the character defects are are real important uh eight and nine making amends that's you know real real key uh i made amends whenever i could Uh, some people i just never seen uh i recently saw the woman who's the director of the department of pediatrics at the hospital that i was asked to repeat the year at and i thanked her for for having me repeat the year and all she said was john i didn't know it helped but i'm glad you know and it took me almost eight years of sobriety to make that amends and I waited till it happened. Uh yeah, you know, I try and admit when I'm wrong. I do prayer and meditation and not prayer and medication. And uh I try I, one thing that I love is is uh to practice these principles in all my affairs. And uh you know I really need you people and I can't stay alive without you and it's okay to realize that maybe part of my disease is that I can't live alone, and that I thought I could, and the drugs let me realize, uh let me believe that I could, and finally something happened uh where I had to get help, and I got it from the higher power, and from the fellowship of AA and NA and Gamblers Anonymous and Cocaine Anonymous and ACOA and Al-Anon and, you know, er- everything anon, and thank you.
0: Thank you very much, John. John's story reminds me a bit about the analogy I had somebody told me about recently about the fellow who's standing at the door with a baseball bat, and the normal man walks through, gets hit in the head, and never goes back again. The schizophrenic gets hit in the head and goes back a second time to make sure it's real, and the alcoholic keeps going back, and when the guy's not there with the bat, he sits down and waits for him. (laughs) (laughs) Our next speaker is someone that a lot of us heard already this morning. He's also spoken elsewhere this afternoon. And I think you'll probably be whispering by the time supper comes around, but I know that uh, he has helped a lot of us today, and I know that as all of us, when we stand up and give a story, we benefit as much, if not more, ourselves and the people we're talking to. So I hope this is for Ian as much as for all of us. Please help me welcome
2: Ian F. Hi everybody, my name's Ian, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> John you make me feel like a failure you know <laughs> I never made it to jail or nut houses or anything I, I used to feel like this like I came back into my community again I used to sit next to these big guys I as you know it's, I'm probably in an orange box to stand up here to reach the microphone um, and and I remember sitting in sort of small-town Canada AA meetings. I don't know, but the guys from my part of the world, they all seem to be big, and drunks seem to be bigger than average. And they're all angry people. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I've been in jail and i would thump this person. I used to sit there terrified, (laughs) absolutely terrified, And, and feel slightly ashamed of the fact that I hadn't done anything really bad, you know? But really, in when I started to look back closely, it wasn't that I'd sort of done anything real bad to anybody else, but I'd done a lot of damage to myself, and I'd done a lot of very subtle and very, very, very uh significant damage to those around me. Uh I'm, as you may notice, British. Uh, I was born to a a, a middle class family in, in Britain. And my dad was a doctor, and my mother's father was a doctor, and my mother's brother was a doctor, and His father was a doctor, and his father was a doctor. And I think it goes back a bit, and I think the last one of my relatives who wasn't a doctor was hanged for poaching salmon in southern Scotland. Uh, They're a pretty mean bunch up there. (laughs) So medicine seemed to be a fairly safer occupation. Um, My dad actually was not an alcoholic, looking back on it. But I remember very vividly, uh, after I came out of treatment and I was doing some stuff, you know, going through the questionnaires, has your life been damaged by anybody, with a, with a problem with alcohol, and I was going through this, and I thought, well, hell no, it doesn't fit for me, because my old man never did this, and we never did that, and it suddenly occurred to me, now, I'm going to change one word here, has your life ever been changed by someone's problem with work, and, you know, wherever meals missed because of work, and this, that, and that. My dad was basically a drinking, smoking workaholic, and I can remember vividly him having his third coronary, and being just going back to work about sort of three weeks later, this was about uh, 19, I mean, late 60s, and um, we really hadn't got heavily into intensive care and resuscitation. People, they didn't have cardiac arrest in those days, they kind of died, I seem to remember. <laughs> we weren't that sort of subtle. Um, and, and saying to Dad, well, you know, you, you you can't go back to work. And he said, you know, you, you can't do all this sort of night work and in Britain, you know, do lots of house calls and so on. So you can't do that. He said, Ian, if I, if I can't work the way I want to work, I'd rather be dead. And I thought, God, what a dedicated man. Now I realize that's sicker in hell, you know. The awful thing is I find myself doing some similar little things now, and it's really rather terrifying. So I, I was born into this family, a sort of um, upper middle class English family, and um, I was born in 1943. My dad was away in India at the wars, and I was brought up by uh, my mother and Adoring grandparents and aunts, and I ruled the roost until my father came back in 1946, and that really got to me. I didn't want him around at all. I wanted him out of there because he started showing me what to do. Then my mother became pregnant, and I developed a sister, and that was terrible. That was worse than having cancer um, because that really screwed things up. Then my sister got real sick. She had fibrocystic disease, and so she was sick all the time, and so. I, I was sort of really pushed on one side, and I really hated this kid, just hated her, and she eventually died, and I was about, I think, four, or four or and a half, and she kind of disappeared. And, and I don't really remember anything more than that. I remember being taken out of school and being told that um, Jill's dead, and the next thing I can remember was being on a boat to the Channel Islands, in little places in, in the English Channel, well, we had some friends with my grandmother who was being very seasick at the time and my grandmother was a large lady being seasick was quite a quite a sight to behold <laughs> and, and I, I came back and no sister no word nobody talked about it and then my mother got pregnant again and then a new sister came and the next thing I was, I was on the boat you know births marriages and deaths i went to Guernsey, you know on this damn boat with my grandmother who was always being seasick <laughs> <And> <laughs> Eventually I got back to discover, you know, last time I went to Guernsey I lost one, this time I gained one and really I think I was better off losing because the gain was a big problem because my nose was stuffed out of joint again um, and, and interesting enough I was just talking to my sister uh, about a year and a half ago and the first time we met for about eight years. Um, we're a real close-knit family uh, and there's my sister and myself and my mother and my sister's in Japan, I'm in Canada, my mother's in England, you know, good alcoholic family, keep it close, you know. Uh, <laughs> And she, she was saying that my mother kind of never talks about it, because she said, well, how come Ian got sent away to boarding school? Because that's what happens in upper class or, you know, fairly wealthy English families. We love our children so much, we send them away. You know, it makes a lot of sense. And this is what happened to me. I got sent away to school. And, and I hated it. It was like going back to prison every time. And so, literally, I was brought up by um, schools for nine months of a year, and I was home for three. Um... I mention this because there's a lot of things which now, with the 2020 vision of hindsight, I'm starting to see. I started to discover that through all of this, I just found that if I ate, I felt better. And so I was a very obese 10-year-old. And the more I ate, the better I felt. And the better I felt, the fatter I got. The fatter I got, the less well I related with my friends, and so the worse I felt, so the more I ate. You know, It's a very similar sort of thing that we do with booze. Now, the really interesting thing is that my dad is a physician, and this would be, I suppose, in the 50s. The treatment of choice in those days, as some of you may well remember, for obesity in all people was amphetamines, dextroamphetamine sulfate. Wow. It was good. And my dad put me on this stuff when I was 10. It was fabulous. I remember that. I remember it vividly. I could play football, English side, English, the round ball and goalposts, you know. I could relate with my friends. I could sort of talk to people. And I can remember as a ten year old pinching with my mother was overweight as well and he got around on his stuff too, I pinched her Dexadrin. And which I sort of carried around with me. So I was actually hiding and making a stash for myself at the age of ten. Eventually I just tailed off it, I sort of lost some weight and came down and then I hit booze about the age of fifteen. My uncle, who I now know is an alcoholic, he used to have a Christmas Eve party. And any of you who've been to Britain in your drinking years, you'll know there's some stuff called Worthington E, which is the prince of beers. Beautiful stuff. Nectar, indeed. And my uncle used to buy a barrel of this, a whole barrel. I mean, you know, my eyes used to get out like organ stops. This was wealth absolutely beyond the powers of my capability of realizing. And I went to this Christmas Eve party, and I drank the stuff. And I drank it, and I got absolutely wasted, and it was blissful. I remember feeling fabulous. And I went home, and I threw up all night, and I threw up the whole of Christmas Day, and I think I threw up a good bit of Boxing Day. But the most amazing thing was that when I stopped throwing up, I just could not wait for another year so I could go do it again. And I didn't think there was much wrong with that. Gradually, I became, I think the thing that stopped me getting into real trouble early on was I was away at boarding school, and it was really quite an adventure to get drunk uh, because th- there was a lot of, it was quite difficult to get hold of it. Um, a, a lot of my, uh, artistic education I thanked of my disease of alcoholism. Um I went to a school, a place called Epsom, which is in southern England. And, um being a public school, they wanted all the guys to be well educated. And so we used to go on cultural outings to London. Now, Near theatres, there are places where you can get booze. And the thing was that you went, you signed up for all these cultural hours. I used to sit through Shakespeare by the ton, Bernard Shaw by a fair amount, lots of opera and lots of... uh, Opera was the thing. Ballet, we never got to. And the secret was you sat there and the first thing you did, you bought a program. And you checked the program to find out where the intervals were. Then you checked where the schoolmasters were. And the secret was you had to be the hell out of there before the lights came up. And then you're in the pub over the road. Now this was guesswork because the masters went to one pub and you had to be pretty damn sure that you weren't going to the same one. Otherwise life got real exciting, very rapidly. The one thing I did notice was that it was always the last act or the last movement that seemed to be much better than any of the others. You know, that state of euphoric drunkenness as the music played over me. And really, I I still remember a certain amount about it, but I remember going back and sort of uh, watching Shaw's St. Joan. I think I missed quite a lot the first time through, you know. So what was happening is my disease was progressing. Uh, I then left and I went to medical school. And I don't know any of you who have ever read a book by an English author called doctor in the house by richard gordon it it is the most blissful book about english medical students and i did not believe i thought well this is a load of buoy there's no way this can happen because it was my idea of paradise lots of drinking lots of womanizing lots of fun work was very scarcely rarely mentioned And, and i went to medical school and to my amazement that it was exactly the same as it was in the book it was bliss And my disease was such, I could drink more than the average guy in my year. And so I was accepted everywhere. All of a sudden, the people used to take me, I used to be asked to join the rugby club and the cricket club, I never played rugby. I played a little little bit of rugby, but only enough to get me into the drinking side of the rugby, you know, not the proper stuff. And cricket I never played ever, uh, but I was always invited to join because I was a good drinker. And the other thing I discovered was that if you learn all the filthy songs, you are in great demand on coach trips and so i was a very good drinker and i have an incredible repertoire of filthy songs and and so I, I could go everywhere so medical school just went along quite nicely there was the odd little hiccup every now and then just the odd little hiccup would would come in i was out getting wasted one night and we had a party at a friend of mine's place whose parents his father was a general practitioner from Poland, and his parents were off visiting the old country. And every now and then they'd go back, and they'd come back. Uh, the, he'd have patients who would come back, and they'd bring him good stuff from the old country, usually in bottles with nondescript corks in the top. And this was green plum vodka. Well, we ran out of beer, and we found Joe's dad's store of green plum vodka. Well, I, I don't remember much more about the evening, apart from the fact that I got locked out of the house. And this was in a very, very, very um, exclusive area of Birmingham. And it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't remember which house the party was in. And so being a smart lad, you know, in England we have letterboxes where they put the mail through. I thought, well, where there's a party, there's noise. Now, if I slide down the road here, and I listen to all the letterboxes, I'm going to figure out which house the party's at. Well, it seemed like a good idea to me. But the little old lady who lived four streets down, she had a bit of a problem with this, because she saw this guy listening to her letterbox, and she called the police. And so I spent a rather interesting night in jail. And, and also, I appeared at the magistrate's court in central Birmingham. And I can remember, vaguely, one of the policemen asked me, would, uh, oh, you got, got all the information from me. I, I arrived in court, and I was standing in the dock, and the, in England they have magistrates, about three magistrates sit at the front. And the one guy who was the chairman of the bench leant forward, and he said, would you like your father to say a few words for you? So I said, no, I don't want my father to have anything to do with this. And I looked down there and my horror was my old man sat right about there. Well, we had a very interesting conversation after this, and I was went and lived at home for a while, and I made a promise to my dad that I would not drink beer for a year. And I did pretty well. Pretty well. Um the only snag was a friend of mine had his twenty first birthday about eleven months or ten months down the road. And and I didn't want to let my father down but by the same token there's no way that I was going to go to my best friend's 21st without getting drunk and so I temporized I wouldn't drink beer so I drank pints of beaujolais and and we got back into business again by some miracle I managed to 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 qualify this day I don't quite know how and I joined the air force and this again was like bliss all over again because here again my disease allowed me to be popular uh, I was extro- uh, very, very, very concerned about the fact that I would never ever drink when I was on call, and I used to think, "Well, oh my God, what a, what a wonderful person I am!" Him, all my partners are drinking when I'm on call. What well, I realise now, of course, I was terrified because if I, what I was terrified of was whether I would lose control of my drinking. I very rarely dra- drove when I drank, I used to get my wife to drive, because she, she was an alcoholic too. Uh, she used to drive, but it didn't really matter so much if she us her license, because we could still work on, on my money, and so we were able to sort of slide through. But gradually things were getting worse and worse and worse and the, the drinking was escalating and I went through a sort of a very severely depressive phase. Um, my wife had a number of affairs and then met the guy that she decided that she was going to sort of go off with because um, her life wasn't much fun at that point. And at this time, you know, this did it. What I hadn't realized was that my relationship with her was a very, very sick, very, very dependent one. And um, when she said that she was going to leave, um, to me, there was no survival. I was going to die. So I thought, well, I'm going to kill myself. So, I set about to starve myself to death. Now, starving oneself to death is quite a slow process. And <laughs> it, it really gets quite boring. <laughs> but I extracted the maximum I could out of it. And I, I, I remember, as I mentioned this morning, that I was sat there kind of slumped and smelly. I wasn't heavily in a washing either. You know, It kind of goes off when you're a little bit down in the world. <laughs> and this rather sort of smelly heap was sat there... And I, I, I really wish I could say that I, I gave up my drinking career on sort of a high note, but I, I used to drink Okanagan wine. You know, you can buy it in big things, and it's real cheap. And, and my wife used to go to the liquor store, and she used to get two four-liter things a day, and we used to sort of sip our way through them. And I was kind of slumped over my pint mug of Okanagan white and sipping and, away, and she looked at me and she said, "You know, you're not handling this well." Oh, Jesus! Christ. So I went and visited my friend, who she he, he, you know, he, he didn't drink wine like I did. Um, he, he drank whiskey, and so we sat, and I got bombed out of my tree. Um, at this point, I think I started to recognise all was really, really getting bad. And I can remember winding up in the office of my senior partner in tears at eight o'clock one morning, okay. and. Poor old Douglas, he was a real gentleman. He didn't know, he hadn't a clue what to do. I mean, this is a, his, his junior partner, he hadn't a clue what to do about it. And so he did what all people who don't understand alcoholism do. He sent me to see a psychiatrist. And so off I trotted to see a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, um, did you drink? I said, well, socially, end of question. He didn't ask any more at all. And he determined that I got a fairly severe depressive illness, and that I got severe marital problems, for which he supplied marital counselling, and um parnate. Now, I do have a resentment against this psychiatrist, because I I really used to like Stilton cheese and port. Now, Parnate really screws that up. You you can't do that. But Parnate, if you look at the instructions very, very carefully, it doesn't say you can't drink alcohol. It just says you can't drink certain varieties of alcohol. And so I stuck with my white wine, and I, I was okay. But I tell you, white wine and Parnate can give you one hell of a buzz. And it makes it difficult navigating all over the place, too. I used to bounce off walls a little bit. And at this time, the nursing staff decided that I probably wasn't doing too well sort of, in the hospital. And one of the nurses went to the hospital administrator and said that uh, she really didn't think that Dr. Forster should be practicing medicine uh, because he was dangerous to his patients. And thank God, I don't, still don't understand how I managed to do it. I, I, I was still getting anesthetics at this time. Um, I was terrified about anesthesia. I, I used to do anesthetics for kids' dental rehabilitations. And I'd see these little kids around about the middle of the week, the week before to check them out. And then I'd see them on the following Monday to anesthetize them. And what I discovered was that if I drank until about three o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, I'd still got a good glow on and I'd still be in a blackout. And I used to anesthetize these kids in a blackout. And the first time I woke up from a blackout in the OR, with these kids set up, intubated, everything going, I was absolutely terrified. But the most amazing thing was, and when you've done it about four or five times, for about a couple of months, you don't worry about it after a while. You're like, oh yeah, here we are again. You know, and blithely carry on. But talking to people, they say, I was better anesthetist when I was in a blackout than I was when I was, when I was sort of functioning on all cylinders. Right at the end, um I can remember, Anesthetizing for a polynidal science where you have to sort of tube them and turn them and do all the other stuff. And what amazed me is all my partners were in the OR. I couldn't figure it out. I thought that I was kind of doing a, a demonstration performance, you know. <laughs> and I guess I did well, you know, because they, they, no, there's no problem with it. Everything went fine. And then, this nurse went to the administrator, the administrator went to my colleagues, and on April the 1st, 1982, I was asked to go and talk to my colleagues at a clinic meeting at noon. Now, if you're going to be told you're a drunk, April Fool's Day is not a bad day to be told. And I'm not too sure that at that time I really thought it was a joke or not, but I was going there. I said, "Hey, that's funny." I mean, they're going great lengths to uh, to play an April Fool's Day trick on me. When I got there, I discovered to my horror, it was for real. And my life was getting so awful at this time that when they suggested that I go away somewhere, I was delighted. God, yeah, anywhere, Atlanta, wow. I didn't even know where Atlanta was. We didn't do, it was fine, you know. And I'm sure there there's some pretty good drinkers down there, no sweat at all. And I go down there, I have a bit of a holiday at this kind of health farm or whatever it is they're sending me to. And meanwhile, somebody would sort out my wife and my children and my job and that damn nurse, you know, um, and by that time I would come back and everything would be fine. So I I went down to Atlanta, and um, the first thing I did when I got there was to form a very sick, dependent relationship with another girl who's in treatment, of course, which is what you expect from a nice, dependent person like me. (laughs) And Claudia and I went through four, almost four months of treatment, Doing absolutely nothing, I was just sicker in hell. And in fact, I thank God it was a four-months treatment program because it had been twenty-eight days. I would probably be dead by now. And they warned us that they are going to throw us out and this, that, and the other. She was a family practice resident, and uh she was um, she was on probation from the. Uh, Texas State Penitentiary for forging prescriptions for Demerol, and I was kind of under suspension with my license in Alberta. And in order to go into treatment, we had, or to continue treatment, we were warned and warned again that if they called us together, uh, they were going to throw us out. But they didn't stop us. And we managed to, we were severely warned. We managed to break up for probably about six weeks at the end, in which time I did a fair amount of work and started to have some inkling of just how sick I was. And the day before I left, and Claudia I had another week to go. Um, we went out on a date together. Again, strictly. The night before I was due to go, here we were risking everything. And you know, those of you who've been through treatment centres, you know the last meeting, you know, when everyone's giving one another hugs and, you know, oh, well, wonderful and you're going to be fine out there. Well, they were tacking my balls to the wall. This day. <laughs> I was the most unlikely person to succeed at anything. (laughs) And I think, I think, I suddenly at that point became aware of the huge enormity of what had happened. And that although my illness was not, or my relapse, was not really to do with alcohol, the alcoholic behavior of the dependency in this relationship, all I'd done was switch from booze, to this very sick relationship, and suddenly, suddenly, suddenly started to see this. And I think that in those those 48 hours after this, when I was in Atlanta before I came home, that was when I got scared sober, because I suddenly started to realise just how unwell I was. And I came back to Wainwright, and my house was gone, my kids were in England, my wife was at that time I think in Vancouver here. And I, I lived in the basement of a friend of mine's home and he was still drinking. And um I think that the thing that kept me sober was trying to get him sober. You know, I got smart this son of a bitch up. You know, he was down visiting me and there's another very good friend of mine who's in this room today. And he and these two, my closest friends came down to visit me when I was in treatment. And the fascinating thing is you know, that they came down and I can remember sitting in the parking lot of the old Ridgeview Institute. Waiting for these guys to come. Now I had lent them my car. These guys fell off the airplane drunk to come visit me who was getting sober. I lent them my car with the idea of saying the that they would come to an open AA meeting. Well, some hopes. Here was me sitting in, in, in the parking lot and I remember Doug Talbot coming up, looking at me, he said, uh, are you waiting for anybody in? I said, well, yeah, I'm waiting for my two Canadian friends. And he looked at me, and he kind of shook his head, pityingly. He said, he says, those two drunks, forget it. I said, well, they got my car. He said, oh, dearie me, <laughs> and, and wandered off. Anyway, th- we we did meet up sooner or later. I can't remember, I think it was quite a lot later that we did meet up. And the miracle is that these guys are now in the program, and one's here, and one's in the program, back at home. Now, I lived with the one guy and his wife, and I, I went back very shakily to work what I would started to realize I think when I left treatment was that there was only one thing between me and the death that I became very close to and that was AA and I hated AA AA meetings were awful the only AA meetings I used to go was a thing called the NABA club in in Atlanta I don't know if any of you know it but they they got a pool table there, you know. I kind of got sober playing pool because I used to listen to these guys talking and it's kind of a bit of a more of a social event. Uh, show you how well I was. Part of the treatment down there was that you, you, you do your first 28 days and then you do second 28 days with the guys from, from the streets. And then you'd go and do a lot of mirror imaging at a treatment center. I got fired from my treatment center. It was Peachtree, uh, hospital. It was fairly sort of couth place, but I was a bit smelly and I didn't kind of fit in with the clientele, you know. The new drunks coming in smelt better than I did. And so I got fired by the psychiatrist who told me I neither looked like a physician nor smelt like one. Well, I was really angry, you know. And so they sent me where I'd fit in. So I, I actually sort of wound up on the union, in the union mission and down in, in Skid Row, Atlanta. And there was there was me, there, there was a guy who, I, I don't know, I hope he's still so, he's a delightful guy. Um, he was a, a urologist, and he was kind of ahead of me, and he was a cocaine addict. And then there was a guy who was in charge of both of us, and, and Billy lived in the union mission. He was a resident there, and he was in charge of these two physicians. And the most terrifying thing was, we didn't think there was anything wrong with that, you know. We couldn't do anything other than prescribe aspirins and Band-Aids. And we were being told what to do by a guy who'd done, I think, two months first aid. And yet the amazing thing was, well, no big deal. We're having a good life down here. I used to go, I used to very, very heavily into exercise programs. And I used to play racquetball. And I used to go and play racquetball. And there's a very, very sort of high-class, yuppie racquetball club just in downtown Atlanta. So I I joined that. I hadn't got a bean in the world, but I joined it. (laughs) And I used to carry my stuff in, in my... Safeway bag, you know, those... those, those you know. And I was really angry that these guys wouldn't talk to me. You know, they'd take one look at me and, oh my God, and they'd disappear off. And I'd sort of change in my grungy, sort of sweaty stuff and stagger out, play a game of uh, of racquetball and come back, pack my things away in my Safeway bag and back to the mission again. And, again, I didn't see anything wrong with it. Made sense to me. When I got back to Wainwright, I recognised that I would have to start going to AA if I was going to stay sober. And I didn't quite know what IA was like in Wainwright because I didn't really know much about it. I didn't know anybody who went there. And I was kind of terrified because I'd been practicing medicine in the town for mm, about 10 years anyway, 12 years, I think. Um, And my first meeting, if you've ever seen anyone do a sort of a 100-yard dash in Olympic times, I was zoomed in there hoping that no one would see me. And there I met the most delightful group of people I have ever met in my life. Um, they nursed me through the first twelve months of acute illness. I was terribly sick, and they used to come and visit me. And I used to hate. You know, they had these half tons with um, the AA slogans on the back. Oh, I used to love it because they'd all know I was a drunk, and these half tons you drive in my driveway. I said, "Guys, look, can you park down the road a little bit, please?" And they said, ah, don't, don't worry. You know, and. They'd come in, and they, they'd visit with me, whether I liked it or not. And I went to a lot of meetings, and I, I drank a lot of coffee with these guys. And they, they kept me sober. And when I left treatment, I was told that I was a silver-tongued son of a bitch, and I could twist anybody around anywhere that I wanted to go, and I was to get a big sponsor. So I went and got a sponsor who was a really nice little wispy guy, and who was a real sort of people pleaser. And Alec was a very nice guy, and he, he was a loan manager at the credit union. And he got transferred. And I think my, I always feel a bit responsible for that because I think my higher power was, um, had a big part to play in this, getting him out of the way. And this other man came into my life, and Gord is about six foot eight. And he weighs about probably 300 pounds. Um, he's an ex Canadian Army warrant officer, and also he's the local outpatient counselor for the local treatment program in, in our area. And Gord and I, work very well together. Um, Basically, he tells me what to do and I say, yes, sir, and go do it. Uh, (laughs) Because he can be real scary when he gets mad. It's it's a wonderful relationship. And it's a relationship I could never ever imagine having before. And he's going through a rough time right now. And I'm having a little bit of difficulty because it's a kind of role reversal. But it was very neat listening to, to Graham saying that there are times when I can't lean on him because he's hurting badly. And right now, it's kind of nice to be able to repay some of the good stuff that he's given me. Um, it's very sad to see. The miracle is that he's going. You know, he go, He's he's still got a good program, and he will be able to go through. He's going through a divorce and a second divorce, and he's he's really hurting badly. The miracle is that he has this program that I have and that we all have in here, which is going to help him through it. My my passage through. AA has been not an easy one. I, I've come to like it, eventually. I used to go to meetings 20 minutes late and leave five minutes early and hide behind a pillar. And I used to like speaker meetings because then you didn't have to say anything. And I, I, the miracle was, it works by osmosis because it kept me alive. Then I started to be able to talk a little bit, and I started going. thing that's quite weird, and I, I, I've noticed it recently, Um, hasn't happened for the last few months about a year ago I went through a period where I I had a lot of difficulty getting off my ass and going to meetings I don't know what it was I really had to grit my teeth and force myself to go Uh, what I've discovered is too that AA doesn't solve everything Um, I need to do some very special things for my relationship if I want it Um, I'm a compulsive everythinger and, and one of my present big issues is one of the old ones that I've had before which is that of being a compulsive overeater and for a long time, I looked to AA to fix my compulsive overeating, And that's not AA's job. The little miracle is that AA has spawned a group of other programs. And it, I think that what I find is with 12-step programs, it's there's a the most incredible smorgasbord of recovery. And that I can pick and choose now where I want to go for whatever issues seem to be bothering me at that time. But I've got to have my foot firmly in AA. Because if I drink... It doesn't matter what the hell else is going on with me. If I drink, I'm screwed. Everything that I have now goes down the tubes. But if i got one foot in AA, the neat thing is I can move out into other areas too. And I think that's a huge freedom that the, the program and the programs have given me. I, I understand Ian a lot better. Uh Ian has a lot... A long, long way to go. i got to learn how to start to say no. That's why I don't wind up talking so much today. (laughs) I feel that anything I can do for AA like this is is repaying some of the huge debt that I owe it. Because without AA, I would be dead. Because I was getting real bored with starvation. That wasn't fun. I think, you know, speed it up, and I think I'd have shot myself. There's no doubt about it. Messy, but quick. And the starvation was getting real, 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 real tired and people were getting bored with it and you know you want a little bit of excitement in your life it sounds crazy but that's the way it felt at the time now I don't think I don't think that there is much that I can not handle without AA like Graham says I don't know all I know now is that I have this incredible tool and this incredible strength supplied by this program in rooms like this the other interesting thing I discovered was that when I, I first went to Overeaters Anonymous, I thought, well, you know, I've been to AA for a lot of years now, and it's going to be easy. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. It was a new program. And AA, I don't have much trouble with with with, with the drinking anymore. But OA, people are far, far better at their program than I am. And I know I have a terrific amount of growth in that area, because it un- unleashes a lot of other things that I have to look at. So for me... All I can say is that I have a huge debt of gratitude to the people in this room and the people in this program. One which I don't think I will ever, ever, ever be able to repay. It is wonderful to come to IDAA, <laughs> when I came to my first meeting actually in Vancouver, uh, the last time it was in Vancouver, was 83, I said, I'm going to go to every year, this is going to be my thing, that I'm going to come, well I've been to three now, so I guess I must have missed a few somewhere along the line. Maybe this year I'll be able to say, every year I'm going to do it, and I'll be able to make it a little bit more frequently. I love it. I love to be around physicians with my disease. I find that sometimes an alcoholic physician in small communities, it can be very lonely, because people don't understand. Especially the work I do. Um, I find that professional isolation can be quite painful, and I, I desperately, desperately need to be able to come to places like this to get my batteries recharged. And I'm so, so grateful to have all you people here to be my battery chargers. Thank you very much for being here for me. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ian. Um, Our next speaker has traveled. We know people who do travel to meetings and and get in trains and buses and that kind of thing. This uh, next speaker has come a very, very long way to be at a meeting. Please help me. Welcome from Switzerland Hands.
1: My name is Hans, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm very happy to be here, a bit nervous, but that's okay. And I thank John and Jan for their stories, and Graham too. And I thank IDAA for uh, inviting me to speak. I know it's a bit late, uh, you know, many meetings and stories, and uh, I have uh, chosen a boring subject. (laughs) I see it in the program, you know, it's service, service, seems even boring to me right now but uh uh, well i just want to say a few things about my my story so you see that i belong there too i kind of you know i heard a lot of people uh uh, saying about shooting up shooting up and so and uh i didn't do much of that you know Uh, uh there were i guess two reasons one was uh uh well several reasons. One, I, I didn't want people to see tracks, you know. Uh I mean yeah. And and the other was uh I, I tried it twice with uh and I I got violently sick for about twelve hours, you know. I was just vomiting for you know, twelve hours on a row and I tried it I would have tried it a third time, but I thought, well maybe maybe it's not so good. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Uh, you know, I just hated it to be sick, but, uh, I, 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 what I found out it was quite convenient was to, uh, pop these ampules and drink them, you know, kind of, it worked, maybe it didn't give you a rush, but it worked kind of longer and, uh, you know, it's just, and yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, but I didn't do too much of shooting up, yeah. Uh, and I was, uh, was, i was much in, into control you know when i started i started drinking pretty late but it hit me like a hammer and i was on a table or in a, in a corner in, in no time i just i just couldn't stop you know and uh, that was that's that that's how i started out and so i i, I tried to change my ways of uh taking that stuff uh, alcohol and uh you know, i spent uh, many many years perfecting that uh, technique and uh, you know how not getting hangovers and not All that stuff, you know, and uh, I was much into um, calculating, calculating. uh, You know, not not showing up drunk at work, you know, and how much can I take? Didn't matter what, but the amount that was important, the time, you know. I had this formula, and I was always calculating, you know, how many per mils I have in my uh, blood and stuff like that, and when I would be. And anyway, that was that was my big thing. And, uh, I got scared too uh, of the drugs. Uh, one, one early experience was, uh, I was, uh, a, a medical student and I did some uh, work at the hospital at night, you know, to just, uh, uh, watch there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, popped some valium pills. I didn't know what it was exactly, but, uh, I think one of the first nights there I just took every hour, so I took one, felt good, you know, no problem. I don't know how many milligrams it was till morning and then the head nurse was, we washed the patients in the morning and the head nurse, uh, was very n- satisfied with our work and she gave us a little glass of eggnog or what, uh, alcohol. And, uh, it was very nice of her. And five minutes later I, I went out of hospital. I had a wave of about half a mile to my place, you know, and had a little motorcycle. And, uh, on this, uh, I blacked out on that way, on that half mile, uh, mile back home. I fell down twice, I guess, uh, and I, I remember people telling me to, to, uh, not to, to drive and, uh, I woke up in my room with, uh, my clothes torn and my, uh, um, knees bloody and, uh, the motorcycle kind of crumpled, you know, it just, uh, <laughs> gave me a lot of respect for, um, the combinations, you know, so I, I, uh, spent, uh, I yeah, spent a lot of years, uh, Kind of perfecting my technique and um, <laughs> uh try to fix it, you know, but my drug of choice really was alcohol and um i i mean i the other the other stuff was like a dessert sometimes, you know, but I could take it or leave it you know <laughs> but I did have to have the alcohol and um yeah my 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 biggest treat when i w- did ha- didn't have any obligation, you know, a free weekend, no obligations, I would say okay that's the what i'm gonna do is um um just not be that And I did it by, uh, by just, uh, drinking a whole lot of, uh, vodka on a, on an empty stomach. I mean, that was the, the, the first, uh, the first few minutes the the weekend started. I did this. I would maybe pass out, uh, 10, 15 minutes. And, uh, and I would be unconscious for a day or more. And, uh, wake up with a terrible hangover. But, uh, I thought I deserved it. That, that was, uh, that was, uh, a good time, you know, and that it over and over and, uh, always appealed to me somehow, you know, we have a good time. And, and actually I was, the good time was I was not there. That was, that was it, you know. Uh, and, 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 uh, booze and, and other dogs helped not to be there. I got into, uh, terrible situations at work, but, uh, luckily nothing really bad happened, but, uh, with my higher power protecting me there. And I felt a lot of, I was in such denial that it took some time in the, in the program, even to, uh, to admit to myself what, what really happened and how it felt. Uh, uh, and um, actually, only by coming to IDAA, I, uh, I um, could kind of admit to myself and to others uh, what actually happened at work. Uh, and uh, it was tremendous relief and tremendous help. Uh, drinking and drugging helped me to, to, uh, uh, feed my grandiosity, you know. I w- thought I was the greatest without even trying, you know. I mean, uh, nothing could touch me and, uh, okay, I hit my bottom. And, uh, it was not, the nothing I did, you know. It just, it just, uh, I never wanted to go to AA. I I heard of it and um I didn't want any part of it. I would m- often I said I'd rather die but uh, then I'm responsible for it myself. Uh, I did myself, uh, I didn't choose to be an alcoholic, I kind of saw that I was one, but um uh, I, I uh my pride, my false pride wouldn't allow me to to uh to accept help. But um uh, I have powered other plans and uh reduced me to a state of utter helplessness and uh a whole bunch of negative feelings for a week and that, that induced me to, uh, yeah, to, uh, well, I, I was on my way to, uh, to a psychiatric ward, you know, just, uh, trying to sign up in the nut house, you know, <laughs> and then it came to me, well, I could try AA and I made that phone call and that was the turning point in my life. I have to say it like that. I had a, uh, like a dam, uh, like a dam that broke, you know, a kind of, uh, I uh um, went uh to the first meeting that first night and I felt I was a dry right place and and uh it was kind of easy for me afterwards. It was kind of hard to get in but afterwards it hasn't been too difficult. But um I mean with stopping uh drinking my grandiosity wasn't gone, you know, and I thought uh, I was burning to uh kind of uh Run the, the show there, you know, and, uh, <laughs> terrible, I mean, uh, and I was burning to the service and, and spread the message, you know, and, uh, and I kind of, my homegirl told me, uh, well, you just better wait a year and give yourself some time and, uh, and, um uh, well, I didn't really want to, but I did and, uh, cleaned some ashtrays and I felt very humble, you know, and I came in, I, I, uh, I thought it very strange that people used the word humility' you know that, that the word was still in use i it was not in my book I didn't really know what it meant but uh um i i didn't know what it meant but uh there were people there talking about it and um yeah I thought thing ashtrays and and wait my chance to be secretary or chairperson you know and then i i would uh kind of uh do this thing right you know and uh, <laughs> uh and uh uh, I had a good sponsor. He, he did a lot of service work and he said, well, you know, generally it's not too good idea, too good an idea to volunteer for things. Maybe it's better that people ask you for certain jobs, you know, and, uh, and I said, okay, they, they, they will, they will, um, see my talent there and this, in uh, that, you know, and I, I, I read the whole literature, so I, I, I knew some of the history and stuff like that. And, uh, so I should inform others, you know, and, and, I, but have not, you know, and, um, but of course, for example, the money being treasured that's oh that's that's so complicated, it's too so boring, you know that's um uh, hm, that's not for me but one of the first things they uh asked me to do was <laughs> taking care of they got them cash, you know, and uh kind of be really <laughs> responsible for it and um, uh, mm, I, know, I had to go through it. I learned a lot, and uh they asked me other things uh uh and, uh, mostly it was things I, I really didn't want to do. Um well, somehow this, some of the things uh, seemed very appealing, but when you got really down to do the work, you know, it was, uh, oh, it was work, you know, it was work. But, uh, <laughs> it helped me a lot. I, I, uh, I work part-time at my job and, uh, I, I do have a lot of free time and, uh, uh, it's, it's a good way to, uh, to fill up time doing Doing something for for a you know, even though maybe it's not it's not to uh, not too, uh glamorous a thing, but uh, I, I, uh, I once I sit down and do something or write something or uh, um, go to a meeting uh, and um, a service meeting or something uh, afterwards uh, I feel better and I always learn something. I uh, I was I isolated very very much while drinking and uh, I heard somewhere. Mm, that Bill uh, W said, uh, an AA meeting is like a short day in school and, uh, yeah I kind of, I uh, didn't have too much trouble in school and I, I always want to be a, a good, uh, <laughs> student, you know, and uh kind of, but, uh, uh, I, uh, I was, I, I got, became more teachable in AA and, uh, I, I learned teacher, uh, I learned things about, uh, life, you know, social life, uh, being, being comfortable with others, doing things, uh, normal people do together or kind of alone, being responsible and so on. There, uh, AA is an invaluable help and, uh, so, um uh, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I like to do service, you know, I think I should get something I should pay something back you know for for what I received because uh uh it was much more than uh than i expected and um but the thing is and I heard it before, but it's really true I always get more out of it uh, than i i take uh, than i give you know that's 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 really it and um yeah that's that's about all i have to say i'm I'm just very grateful to be here uh sometimes I think. I don't know why, why I go and, uh, but then I go there and I am here and I meet all the people I know and, and the new ones I don't know and it's just, uh, it's, it's uh, a very healing and uh, soothing experience. Uh, exciting too and, uh, I wouldn't miss it for, I wouldn't miss it for anything. Thank you.
0: Thank you thank you very much, Hans. I, uh, I think one of the things I've learned, I've learned lots of things this afternoon, but as this panel and the panel before it, one thing I have re- been reminded again is that the healing begins when the masks come off. I'd like you to join with me again in thanking our speakers. Plus, I'd like us also, I know this will happen again, but let's take the opportunity as well of adding the applause for the organizing committee. it just been a terrific day. Thank you very much.
2: And for those of you who will, would you join me in closing in a traditional fashion with the Lord's Prayer?